Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Sola. This series covers the five pivotal ideas of the Protestant Reformation. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone. These ideas lie at the heart of the true Christian faith and are as foundational today as they were 500 years ago. Today's text is going to be out of the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. I'll also cover a little bit of the context as I move through. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Today we're going to be talking about a second great saying of the Reformation out of these five sayings. Today we are looking at sola gratia, which means grace alone, that we are saved because of grace alone. So hear now the words of the living God. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Martin Luther, in his time prior to the beginning of the Reformation, he was an Augustinian monk. And Luther took being a monk very seriously. In fact, he later recorded, I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that I could say if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this. For it had gone, if it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death, what with vigils, prayers, readings, and other works. And yet, my conscience would not give me certainty, but I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. The more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker, and more troubled. And in fact, Luther went to confession so often, he would spend hours a day in confession because some of his confessions would be that I did not confess sincerely enough last time I confessed. And the confessors that he would go to got so tired of this, one of them finally told him one time, if you're going to come and weary me with all of this, please go and do some sin that's actually worth confessing. Instead of all of this silly stuff you keep coming in here with. Luther was extremely troubled because he saw his own sin. And he also saw God's righteousness. But his understanding of grace was that God would only help those who first helped themselves. And Luther said, I'm not doing everything I can. I know that. And nobody else is. And if God's going to judge me based on law and based on what I do, what hope is there? In fact, at one point, Luther was asked by his spiritual advisor, Martin, Brother Martin, don't you love God? And he actually said, love God, I hate him. Because he was so shattered by the righteousness of God and his understanding of grace. And so what Luther was living under is what Ben Franklin, one of the founders of our country, actually said, which is God helps those who help themselves. But Luther said there was no peace 
in that. So today what we want to talk about is what is grace and why is it necessary and sufficient for our salvation. So let's dive into what the scripture says. Sin, grace, and salvation. These three are intimately related and they're what we're going to be looking at today. Notice in Ephesians chapter 2, our text, the Apostle Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, says, we are saved by grace. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So Paul says, you are saved by grace. And notice he says that it is not from yourselves. Grace is not something from yourself. Furthermore, he goes on and he says that it is the gift of God, this this thing of grace and faith. Grace and faith are gifts that God gives to us. It is a, salvation is a gift of God. It's not something that we work and we earn. We are saved by grace. But here's the amazing thing, and many people don't understand this today. The medieval church would agree with everything I just said. That was not the disagreement that Luther and Calvin and the other reformers had. Because everybody agreed with what I just said. They read these verses as well. The problem was how they defined sin and therefore how they defined grace and how we work salvation. Here's what the medieval church was teaching. They taught that sin had made us sick. Sin had caused us so that we were weak, but it did not affect us in a way that we couldn't choose to love and serve God. We were sick, we were weak, but we could choose to love and serve God. And if we, in fact, did do that, then God would give grace to all of those who, in their sickness and weakness, took the first step towards God. God would then meet them and give grace. And grace for them was actually a substance that was infused into us. It was poured into us and it gave us the extra help we needed to overcome sin and to choose to do what was right and to walk with God. And so when when a baby was brought up and was baptized, grace was poured into that child so that even though they were sick and weak from their sin, this was going to help them choose to do what was right. And every time you went to confession, like Luther did day after day after day, supposedly you would you would have more grace poured into you that would help you in your weakness and sickness. And when you went and you uh, did penance, you would be given more grace. More of it would be poured into you. The theologian Michael Reeves has used this analogy that I think is very good. Grace was kind of like a can of spiritual Red Bull. It was like jolt. It would give you some extra caffeine. It would give you that extra pep you needed to do what you needed to do, and God would see your efforts and he would keep giving you more of it. You would work and God would help those who helped themselves. Grace improved our natural abilities, but we had to kind of work to get grace and then we had to work on top of grace. In short, grace was necessary, but it was not sufficient. And friends, that's the key that we're looking at this entire month. It's not, the the, the medieval church said scripture was necessary, but scripture wasn't sufficient. 
You had to add to it the tradition of the church or else you didn't really know what God wanted you to do. The reformer said no scripture alone is sufficient. And grace was considered necessary. You, you needed that can of Red Bull. You needed that extra pep to help you overcome your weakness, but it wasn't sufficient. God would only help those who help themselves. Now the Reformation looked at a verse like Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, this passage here, and what they said is, no, we've got it wrong about sin, and we've got it wrong about grace, and therefore we've lost the gospel. We don't understand salvation. Now here's why. The Reformation said, well, first off, we need to understand sin didn't make us spiritually sick. It made us dead. Dead. Now, why did the Reformation say that? Well, because Ephesians 2, the very passage we're looking at, if you look at verses 1, and then I'll kind of skip down to 4 and 5, because Paul expands 1 a little bit, explaining what he means. But it says, as for you, you were what? dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, somebody help me out here. If I find a dead guy and I tell him, if you just raise your hand, I'll give you CPR. You don't have to do much. Just raise your hand and I'll come help. Is that any help to that dead guy? Well, why not? What do dead people do to help themselves? What do they do to help themselves? So, so Paul here says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not sick, not, not needing help, dead. Notice in verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So Paul says here, not that grace came in after we did something, grace came in and raised us from the dead. Dead men don't do anything to save themselves. And Paul says, you didn't do anything to save yourself. It's by grace that you were saved because God was rich in mercy. And notice there, because we're going to come back to this, the definition Paul's giving here of grace, it is parallel with love and mercy. It's not a substance it's the nature and character of God. Grace is not something infused into us. It's the fact that God is merciful and kind and compassionate towards those who are not deserving of that kindness, that mercy, and that compassion. So the reformer started by saying, the effect of sin is not that we were lazy or sick, so a little spiritual red bull will help you out, but rather that you're dead. You're unable to do anything to save yourself. So if we're left with God, we'll help those who help themselves. God's going to spend eternity helping no one because no one can help themselves. Dead men cannot do anything to save themselves. They can't even respond to the effort of others. If I fall down dead and you come and give me CPR, I have no part in the process. There's nothing I can do to help or not help. Now, secondly, the reformer said, this spiritual death is that sin has left us in total depravity, which does not mean we are as depraved and bad as we can be, but rather that there is no part of us that is unaffected by sin. Every part of who we are has been tainted and polluted by sin. And this is because 
in the medieval church, they were saying, well, no, sin affected certain things, but it didn't really affect your will. And, and actually, a lot of them said, you know, it really hasn't affected your mind that much. You can kind of reason your way back. And the reformers said, no, you're corrupt through and through. Every part of you is corrupted by sin. And it's affected you in such a way that apart from grace, you cannot turn to God. So notice in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. As it is written, this is the Apostle Paul, there is no one righteous. How many are righteous? No one. So, so who's helping themselves? No one. Not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So see, the, the, the medieval church said, well, if you seek God first, he will give you grace. But what does Paul tell us here? How many people seek God? No one. None. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And to make the matter worse, this wasn't even Paul's own idea. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's just quoting Old Testament passages here and saying, this is what we've always been taught. And so the reformers looked and said, as a result of sin, no one does good. As a result of sin, no one seeks God. So as a, re as a result of sin, if we are to be saved, it will have to be entirely a work of God's grace. For there is nothing in us that deserves or desires salvation. Before you and I were saved by the grace of God, you were not running to God, you were running away from God. Amen. And so was I. We, we were running hard in the wrong direction, resisting Him with our every breath. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture. But the medieval church had lost it. This is why Luther was trying all of these things but none of it worked because he didn't understand who God was. He didn't understand who his own sin was. He didn't yet understand the grace of God. So thirdly, the reformers came and said, look, grace is not something infused into us, but rather it is the unmerited kindness and favor of God. Remember in our text in Ephesians 2, it's God's love and mercy. Another text that teaches the same thing is Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. The Apostle Paul there writes, but when the kindness... And love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Notice that in verse 7, he says that we are justified by His grace. So notice how Paul describes grace here. It is kindness. It is love. It's not because of righteous things we do. We don't have any part of grace. It's God's mercy. And he sums all of that up and says, this is what it means to be justified by his grace. So grace is not some material thing God pours into us, like that extra bit of caffeine, but rather grace is God's kindness, love, and mercy shown to sinners because of the work of Jesus Christ. So it's not a thing, it's a description of God's very nature and character. And then out of that, the reformers said, well, then we have to also think if we're saved by grace through faith, what does this mean? Well, it means grace is not added to our own works. It's a gift of God. In fact, it's really the exact opposite of our works. The, the medieval church was saying, well, God will add grace to your works and kind of perfect your works. But the reformers said, but no, the scripture actually says that God's grace is the opposite of our works. 
Notice in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and I'll add to, to this as well, Romans 11, 5, and 6. Notice, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works. So they're opposed. It's grace you're saved, not works. Your works don't have anything to do with it. Romans 11, 5, and 6, Paul is, is even more blunt about it. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. See, Paul says, grace and works aren't working together. They're opposed to one another. You are either trying to be justified before God on the basis of what you have done. Look at me. I stuck in my thumb. I pulled out a plum. What a good boy am I. God, can you add some grace to that? Or you are justified by grace, which says, I was dead, so I couldn't even get my thumb up there to stick it in. And if I had, I would have pulled out something wrong, not a plum. God, you're going to have to, in mercy, save me. Amen. They are opposed to one another. We are saved by grace, not by works. And Paul here is actually quoting in Romans 11, he's talking out of the Old Testament again. Paul's saying this is always the way it has been. This is not something new. Salvation is always by grace, not by works. And in fact, what Paul is saying here is grace plus works equals nothing. Works nullifies grace. Does not add to it. It nullifies it. Just like last week we saw Scripture plus tradition as our final authority equals nullifying Scripture. That's what Jesus said. You nullify the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. Here Paul says, if you tell me it's grace plus my works, what you've told me is you've nullified grace. Grace is no longer grace. They could not be a sharper antithesis. And so finally, the reformer said then, grace does not make us good enough to be saved. Grace is the fact that God saves the wicked. God saves the wicked. Romans 4, Paul's outlining the gospel and he says this. This is a scandalous saying, but hear what God tells us. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. So Paul says, if there's works involved here, we're not talking about gift. Like in Ephesians 2, it's a gift of God. Paul says, if it's works, not gift. And here's why. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the, who does God justify? The wicked. God justifies the wicked. His faith is credited or imputed as righteousness. Paul says, it's not that your works have a little grace added onto them. No, God justifies the wicked, not those who have helped himself. So the gift and our working are opposed to one another, both in our text in Ephesians 2 and here in Romans 4, 4 and 5. So God justifies the wicked, not those who have begun to be better because grace is somehow making them better and there's just kind of this back and forth. That is not the gospel. So what sola gratia means is that God in His kindness and mercy saves those who are unable to do anything to save or improve themselves. And He does this not because of anything good in them, nor any good they do or choose, but purely 
because of his own mercy. Now to give a little preview of where we're going to go in this series, when I put it that way, how much credit do you and I get for being saved? And that would be the point. That's the gospel. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's glory to God alone. That's what the system is about. So if your system, your understanding of the gospel leaves you saying, I've got this little place of credit to me, friend, I would challenge you whether you really understand the gospel. Because it is about God and what he has done. Sola gratia means that God does not help those who help themselves, but rather he saves those who could do nothing to save themselves. It is God raising the dead because of the mercy and grace of Christ. Now, I don't want to leave us in a history lesson from 500 years ago. My point in this series as we're talking about this is, friends, we are not in a better place today. We're in a worse place today. We're in a worse place today than we were 500 years ago. We, because we're human beings and we always do, we trust in our own efforts rather than grace more than ever. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. Did they say, oh God, have mercy on us, we have sinned? Or did they try and come up with some way to work things out for themselves? Right, we got a plan. Little fig leaf, we'll work this out. Right? And when God comes to them, do they even respond then? Or does Adam say, well, you know, Lord, it's the woman you gave me, I might point out. I think you're kind of the problem here, God. What I'm sure is it's not me. Is that not what we did in the garden? Go all the way through Scripture. Israel did this constantly in the Old Testament. Jesus comes in, and he's more angry with the Pharisees than anybody because they quoted more Bible than anybody and completely misunderstood it because they thought they were working their own way to salvation. That's exactly what Paul thought he was doing until he was knocked off the horse on the road to Damascus when he understood it is not by my, my works, it's by the grace of God. You can look in, the, in the, the rest of the New Testament. There's the Judaizers where Paul has to constantly deal with people who came in and said, well, you know, yes, I understand grace and Christ and faith, but we've got to add, and Paul says, the second you say that, you've lost the gospel. Plus, nullifies everything that was before it. It is not grace plus our efforts, Christ plus what other people do, faith plus our own works. Paul says if you do any of that, you've lost everything. And then we go through the history of the church. Men like Marcion, he arose and said, if you start doing this, you're going to tell people and they're going to just start sinning. If you make it all about grace... They say the same thing Paul said in Romans chapter 6 that people were going to say. Well, then, hey, let's just sin. Paul's answer to that is not to give them law and say, well, no, no, no. Paul's answer is then you're not understanding the gospel. And Marcion did the same thing. A man named Pelagius. This week in the After Hours video, I'm going to talk about Augustine and Pelagius. Pelagius rose up and was angry at what Augustine was saying about the grace of God. And he got condemned as a heretic over and over and over again. But you know, the sad thing is, even though the church officially said many times over Augustine was right, they tended to think and act more like Pelagius than they did like Augustine. Because it's it's born in us. So let me tell a little bit. I've been telling you last week, and we'll do this each week. 
Lifeway and Ligonier did a major poll of Americans in 2014. And they asked a whole number of questions, all of which are related to this. So here's some of the questions. They went up to Americans all over and they said, a person, is this true or false? Tell us if you agree with that. A person obtains peace with God by first taking the initiative to seek God and then God responds with grace. 64% of Americans agree with that statement. Two out of three. That is a perfect encapsulation of the doctrine that the reformers were completely revolting against. That is God helps those who help themselves. Two out of three Americans. Now they flipped the question around. They said, salvation always begins with God changing a person so that they will turn to him in faith. Only 41% agreed with that. Now, of course, again, if you add the math up, as I said last week, you'll discover a bunch of Americans are self-contradictory. Because some people said, well, yes, I have to respond first. But then they said at the same time, oh, no, God has to do something before I can respond. Which doesn't make any sense, but that's us. Here's where it gets worse. Because, see, the re whenever somebody does not magnify grace, I can tell you already they have a low view of sin. So they asked, Everyone sins, or they stated, do you agree with this? Everyone sins at least a little, but most people are by nature good. 67% agreed with that. We're by nature good people. Hitler was just having kind of a bad day. That's what we want to believe about ourselves. One last one they did. People do not have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative. 76% disagree with that statement because that goes against everything America likes and believes. We're, we're pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So there's no way it can be that I can't be in control of this thing. Whatever else I believe, it's got to be that I'm in charge. So three-fourths, which is about the highest percentage they got on everything. You can't hardly get three-fourths of Americans to agree that the sun rises in the east but you can get them to agree that there is no way that I'm not in charge of this thing. Now, as bad as that is, you might say, well, that's a lot of people. Not all Americans are Christians. I'm going to give you the two worst things which came out of a poll that was at an evangelical convention. This is evangelicals, people like us. They went up and they said, tell us if you agree or disagree with this statement. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Do we agree with that statement? 66% of evangelicals disagreed with that statement. Even though it's a direct quote from Romans chapter 3. They disagreed with it. But here is what they did agree to. God helps those who help themselves. 86% of evangelicals agreed, and 65% thought it was in the Scripture. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Please, please, I beg you as your pastor, do not ever answer that kind of stuff on a survey. I will feel like I have wasted my life. They disagreed with what is a direct quote of Scripture 
and thought Ben Franklin's aphorism was actually Scripture. This is evangelicals. If anything, we may have it worse. We have been schooled in what one guy called moralistic therapeutic deism. God just wants me to be happy. The way to do that is be a good little boy or girl, and he'll kind of take care of you. And other than that, he kind of lets you run your own life. That's the faith we are inculcating ourselves in. And they've discovered that evangelicals have that disease worse. That is not the gospel. That is not. This should break our hearts. Luther and Calvin, men like William Tyndale, died not so we would believe this kind of stuff. But it's what we believe. It's what we've embraced. Now, the current state, because again, I'm not, I'm not interested in bashing the church from 500 years ago, nor trying to bash Roman Catholicism today. I want to talk about who we are and what we believe. The current state of the American evangelical church is we often believe Ben Franklin more than we believe Scripture. And it's right there in Numbers. We, we live by American culture. We believe the exact things that the reformers said was what was wrong with the medieval church. What they were having a reformation over, we tend to embrace those exact things. We oftentimes know our own culture's beliefs better than we know our scriptures. And we're more inculcated in, and building our lives on those cultural beliefs and we try to find some Bible to add on top of it rather than knowing what the scripture says and saying, you know what? That, that cuts right across what our culture believes, and I just have to go against what the culture believes because we're going to stand by the Scripture. So we live as if God helps those who help themselves. And what God does is if I'm good and I read my Bible, I get a little can of Red Bull grace poured into me to just get me through my day. Rather than saying, no, it is the grace of God. It's, it's not about anything that I have done or could do. We believe, preach, and live as if our problem is external and the solution is internal. We think our problem's the world out there, but, but I'm basically good. No, the problem is if you wrecked on a desert island and never had contact with another human being, you'd be rotten to the core. And so am I. My problem is internal. And salvation is external. God has got to come and rescue. Jared's going to be talking about that more next week. But that's the way we live. We believe, preach, and live, in short, as if grace is necessary, but not sufficient. That's our problem, friends. And that's why we need a modern reformation. Look at those two stats. If nothing else would ever scream to you that we need a reformation in the evangelical church today, look at that. It's wrong to say there is no one who's seeking God, no one who does good, but it's right to say God helps those who help themselves because I think that's in the Bible. That's the state of where we are. So how do we apply the word? Well, this is pretty simple when we're looking at sola gratia. The question that Sola Gratia poses to you and I is, do you know that you can do nothing 
to save yourself. There's, there's nothing you can accomplish. Sin has so corrupted you that everything you think, say, and do is tainted by it. It's to the core of our being. Everything we do is polluted by sin. Another reformer in the, in the early days of the Reformation, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said, the best prayer I have ever prayed has enough sin in it to condemn every human soul to hell. That's the way the reformers thought. Do, do I understand that? And that's my best prayer. Let's not get into the other stuff Brett does. We are corrupt. We are broken. And we don't get anywhere by minimizing our sin and maximizing our righteousness. That's the exact opposite of what the Scripture does. That's the method of the Pharisees. That's the method of, of heretics like Pelagius. That's not what the Scripture teaches us. We are spiritually dead with no desire to seek God. Do you understand? Your neighbor, your family member, your close friend doesn't have a little problem. They're not a little sick. If they are outside of Christ, they're dead. But there is good news. God raises the dead. He's in that business. He's been doing it for millennia, and He still does it today. The reason you are here with any desire to hear the Word of God being taught is because God looked on your wretched, sin-sodden soul when you were dead. And He forgave your sins. He raised you up in Christ Jesus. He deposited His Holy Spirit within you and gave you a desire to start walking with Him. If you are a believer, that is your testimony. Whatever else you might say about who you were. That's what is true of every one of us. And so when we're looking and when we're praying, what Annapolis needs is not just a little minor plastic surgery. We need a heart transplant. We need to be resuscitated and raised from the dead. But our God does that. He does that. And so that's what our cry is. Our only hope is the grace of God. But thanks be to God. He is gracious. Did you notice all the things we were singing this morning where we thank God for His grace? Your grace is sufficient. For me. And I might point out that comes directly out of Scripture. Once again, it comes right out of Scripture. So don't argue with God. Don't try and add your efforts. See, the problem at, at the result of all this, and we'll continue unpacking this, but us saying we're going to add to what God has done is kind of like one of my four-year-old grandkids going up to like Rembrandt and saying, let me help you out with that painting there. I'm going to make it better. Mm, yeah, no, I'm going to go with your not. You're going to make a mess of it. Anything you add is only going to degrade what was already a classic, a masterpiece. Well, Rembrandt's best would mar what Jesus has done for us. There is nothing we can do to add to it we simply humbly admit and receive. So we're going to come to this table. And this table is visible sola gratia. 
This table shows us we don't add anything. We have nothing to do with this. This is by grace alone. We come to this table hungry, poor, needy, and we receive grace. We receive food to feed us and fill us. And it is all bought and paid for by Christ. And the only thing that's required of you and I, as it is in everything else in salvation, is nothing. Which very often is the one thing we don't want to admit we have. we got to find some way to bring something. Particularly, again, if there has ever been a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps culture, it's this one. And that is really good in certain areas of life not when it comes to the gospel, not when it comes to salvation. So we come to this table, and I read the words of Isaiah 55 to all here who admit they have nothing. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, which is all of us, come, Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me. And eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. This table is open to anyone who will come and say, I am poor. I am wretched, I am blind, I am hungry, and I come bringing nothing. Lord, feed me. If you believe that, you are welcome to come to the table with us. If you don't believe that, then you're denying the gospel, and you should let the meal pass because it is for those who embrace the gospel. But if you believe your only hope is that you are saved because of God's grace and mercy and kindness alone, which is given to us through Jesus Christ alone. And we access by faith alone. And I encourage you, come, eat, and drink, and let your soul delight in the richest affair. For what I receive from the Lord Jesus, I pass unto you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we are so grateful that this morning we can come to this table of grace. And it is a table of grace, Lord, because we did nothing to set this table. We did nothing to earn a right to come to this table. It was set by grace. We are invited by grace. We come and we feast by grace. We ask that your Holy Spirit would meet us and minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
What we're going to do, if we can stand together actually, as they're passing out the elements, we are going to sing Amazing Grace. I'm going to be singing a cappella on a microphone, which is not going to minister grace to your soul. So you need to sing along with me as we sing. And I encourage you, contemplate the words of this ancient, rich Reformation hymn. And then we will take together. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread, we are reminded that everything is sola gratia. Lord, you made us as a sheer act of grace. You had no need for us, but you spoke, and all the universe leapt into existence. And then out of sheer grace, you bent down, and you scooped up dust, and you breathed your very breath, into us, making us the very image of God. And all of that was by grace. And as we hold this bread, we are reminded that you provided all things richly for us to enjoy in our garden home. And we turned, and we rebelled, and we plucked that which was not ours, and we proclaim that we would live by our works and our wisdom. And we rejected your gifts of grace. And yet, you turned to us in grace even when we had rebelled. And you promised that the seed of the woman would come forth and would work redemption for us. And so, Jesus, across millennia, the promise was never forgotten. It was never quenched until you took flesh in the womb of the virgin and until you stepped forth to work salvation for us. And we today admit that it is by your works, O Christ, that we are saved and not our own. For where we had broken God's law with our every thought, our every word, and our every deed, you obeyed the will of the Father in your every word, your every thought, your every deed. And our only hope is that that righteousness is ours because it is imputed to us because of your vicarious life and death. And so as we take this bread, we are saying that we believe we are saved by grace alone. And we say thanks be to God for the grace given to us through the body of Jesus Christ. Take and eat. And oh Lord, this cup is the cup of grace. For though you made the promise in the garden that you would come and work salvation, we did not know as you did, oh Lord Jesus, that it was going to come at the cost of the very death of the Son of God. Father, in the garden we took and we gave and we ate and we brought destruction. But, O oh Lord Jesus, on the night you were betrayed, you took and you gave and we ate life and salvation because it is all by your 
grace. And Lord, we confess this morning as we lift this cup that our only hope is the blood of Christ that has given us access into this grace of God in which we now stand. That we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, which has opened to us all the riches of the grace of God. And so Lord, as those who are empty and have no claim, we simply say thanks be to God as we receive the blood of Jesus for us. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would fall fresh on us. Would you continue to mold we who are so often more faithful disciples of Benjamin Franklin than we are of the Lord Jesus. Would you mold us this week so that we would remember it is by grace. Grace from first to last. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fasten this on us when we are condemned, when we are like Luther, trying, striving, laboring, working, thinking if we just do a little more, we will have your favor. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes that we could see the smiling face of our Father. A Father who receives us and who says, well done to us because the righteousness of Christ is ours by grace. And Father, by that grace, would you who've raised us and justified us and imputed Christ's righteousness to us, would you continue to work us, make us your workmanship so that we can walk out those good works, not to earn your favor because that's given to us in your grace. But Father, can we do it so that we can show gratitude to you this week? What a marvelous God you are. What a marvelous gospel you have given to us. How deep and marvelous is your mercy and your grace. Oh, Father, as we sang this morning, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Thanks be to God. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. Now receive the blessing of God. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be yours in abundance. Go in His grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.